Since 1992, Genesis House has been helping real people heal from addiction on their private recovery campus in beautiful Palm Beach County, Florida. Their family-owned program is accredited by the Joint Commission and offers detox and dual diagnosis treatment in a comfortable and confidential setting. At Genesis House, they focus on treating the underlying causes of addiction. Their comprehensive approach includes psychiatric care, individual and small group therapy, trauma healing techniques, and holistic care including yoga, massage, and animal-assisted therapy. After treatment, their clients enjoy the lifelong support of a nationwide network of Genesis House alumni. Call Genesis House today at 1-800-737-0933 to speak with someone who understands. Visit them on the web at www.genesishouse.net. It's time to start your journey to a long and successful recovery. Genesis House and the Friends in Recovery podcast are proud to bring you Answering the Call, the first responders podcast. Join your hosts as they address the real issues of first responders' health and wellness, from physical and mental health to relationships and work-life balance. Answering the Call, the First Responders Podcast is available on Facebook, Podbean, iTunes, and YouTube, as well as iHeartRadio, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, here are your friends in recovery answering the call. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Answering the Call, the First Responders Podcast. I am Mike Miles, the podfather, and I'm here to uh, talk to you tonight about PTS post-traumatic stress they used to call it ptsd and then the uh in the dsm-5 um they get rid of the d they get rid of the disorder basically what they're saying is post-traumatic post-traumatic stress is a uh, reaction that can stay with you for a long time um as a result of something you may have participated in um a death horrific death uh, car accident, fire. Uh, and if you're an EMS worker, policeman, fireman, correctional officer, EMS, uh, first responders in any way, shape or form, or a veteran, you know, you might have seen some uh, horrific uh, occurrences over your career. You know, I was fortunate. I lasted 35 years as a Lowell, Lowell Massachusetts police officer, 28 early nights, four to 12 in a cruiser and seven as the employee assistance professional in my office out in Chumpsford. And what I did was I, um, I helped cops and their families from all cities and towns, not just Lowell. Because um, 10 years ago, there weren't really many departments that had their own employee assistance professional. They would um, use excuse me, they would use mental health providers from insurance companies. Um, and you know, if you're a police officer or a fireman or a correctional officer uh, or, or an EMS worker, you know, and you have some issues of your own or your family does, you might, you might not want to go speak to a stranger or you might, you might say, hey, I'd rather speak to a professional who doesn't have any knowledge of who I am or who my family is. but. Um, I think being a cop, a street cop, and having an education in therapy, having a master's in social work, and licensed to be an alcohol drug counselor in two states, Mass and New Hampshire, because it's so close, um, 
you know, I'd much rather go see somebody like that. My guy is Jeff Seizel. Jeff Seizel is a therapist from Wuben, um, Massachusetts. Well, that's where his office is. He actually lives in Boston. And um, great, great guy, good friend, good therapist. He works with the DEA and he works with several local uh, police departments, including Lowell. Actually, he replaced me when I left. I was there uh, two, three years after I retired. I stayed on another three years um, as the EAP. New chief came in. We don't get along. Politics. See you later. And it was it's fine with me. Um, I'm a busy guy. I stay busy. You know, I think when you're uh, in the law enforcement, there's a lot of politics, you know, that go on. Um, from the city manager, your mayor, who's ever in charge of your city and town, goes directly to the chief. Usually chiefs are chosen um, for a variety of reasons. You know, first of all, they have to know what they're doing. Uh, and they also uh, have to be somewhat politically correct, uh, connected, and they have to uh, be able to, <clears throat> excuse me, get along with everybody. So it's a tough job. You know, uh, I've never been a chief. I've known some chiefs. There's no doubt in my mind, you know, I could have done that job. <laughs> I never, I've never taken a promotional exam. I get along with people well, I'm knowledgeable, but um, some people are made to do that job and some aren't. But irregardless, um, the EAP position is a position I think you're gonna see more and more in law enforcement. Getting back to post-traumatic stress disorder, I feel it's important to talk about it for several reasons. Um, I know when I first became a police officer in 1980, when I was in the academy, an, uh, an agent from the FBI came and he spoke about stress in law enforcement. And you know what? It was a four hour block. I still have the binder, some of the notes he passed out, the handouts he had. And I really give that era um, a lot of credit for, for seeing the future. And I feel like as a result of what's going on now in society, um, they wanna put social workers with police officers to go on certain calls, calls that somebody might have a mental health issue. They might have, you know, be suicidal, they might be homicidal. Um, whatever the reason, there's definitely a mental health block there. And they wanna make sure that these people get the right treatment. Well, most cops are trained nowadays to uh, observe, and uh, we have a lot of resources at our, you know, at our fingertips. We can call, we can contact anyone um, via the uh, communications room. And um, if you need to take somebody in section, we call it section, section 35, and put them in uh, a facility for a mental health evaluation for their own safety or safety of other people, you know, you can do that. Uh, without much fanfare, but I can see going forward, um, they're talking about, when I say they, I mean society, politicians, mostly the Democrats, are talking about having um, social workers somehow involved with some police calls. And I think it's it's got some good points and it's got some points that I think are very detrimental to law enforcement. You, know, you got to watch out for your own safety, number one. And when you have to keep an eye on somebody else that hasn't been trained, um, 
in emergency situations that could be dangerous, could be life or death. You know, I, I think I think it takes the onus off of your command presence at the scene. You know, as a police officer, now you're worrying about A or B, a man, a man or a woman, it doesn't matter, a social worker that's there to help and they, they're there justifiably and obviously they want to help and they're trained. But some situations um, are very dangerous, very, very dangerous. Not all of them, but some. Getting back to post-traumatic stress. I think it's, uh, I, I equate it to a smell or an odor, all right? Uh, if something smells really bad, if someone's burning tires, you can smell that thick, rubbery, toxic um, smell. It, it's very distinct, you know? And if you smelled burning tires, you, you, you wouldn't forget it, you know? It's like smelling a dead body. I mean, you're not going to forget that odor. It stays with you. But you don't want to smell something that's offensive, but we breathe, you know what, we have to, we have to breathe, you know, and when we breathe, we get an odor that's offensive or dangerous. Um, we have no, you know, we have no say in the matter. If, if we're in the proximity of, of a burning tire, I'm using that as an example. Well, I feel like post-traumatic stress is very similar to that. We have no say in it, whether you think you're going to be affected by, I'll just give you an example. Um, a man sitting on a toilet in the middle of August died on the toilet probably seven or eight days. He's been there. He's a pile of flesh, bones, maggots, and he's he's excreted so so much liquid that he's seeping through the bathroom floor down to the next bathroom below the next apartment below them there's there's a stain and there's there's fluid dripping down and that was a smell i'll never forget but even if you took away the smell just the sight of that is something that popped in my head and stayed there did it make me want to go home and cry and bury my head in the pillow and say i can't do this job no absolutely not absolutely not but I'm just using that as an example. Something, you know what? I didn't have a cell phone with a camera. Maybe I would have taken a picture of that back nowadays. I don't know. Um, you know, not to show you, just for my report or whatever. Um, I don't think the average person working 40 hours a week, you know, is required to see something like that. But unfortunately, as a police officer or a fireman or an EMS worker, you are, you know. Um, so that, <laughs> that incident has been etched in my mind for over 40 years, you know, for, for 1980, that 1981, I, I observed this, um, it didn't affect me. It didn't keep me up at night. It was just something that was there. Well, I'll give you another example of a couple that young couple, 17 and 16, and they had a pact that they um, decided to commit suicide. I don't know what the reason was. I think it had to do with their families not wanting them to date one another. And the reason was the boy's father had committed suicide via carbon monoxide, put a hose in his exhaust pipe, ran it through the window of his car and fell asleep. 
went to sleep and died. Well, this is what this couple had done together. So this boy who was 17 or 18 had known about his father's suicide. He never met his father. His father did this when he was still in the womb. His mother was pregnant with him. But is it hereditary? I don't know. But I do know that if a family member does commit suicide and you're aware of it, your chances of committing suicide increase considerably. And I think the experts say 30%. So um, I just remember a warm summer night and just checking this lover's lane, still sunny out. It was six o'clock and a beautiful July night. And uh, saw a green Maverick, driver's door open, two-door car, front seat, um, the the back part of the front seat was forward. There was a couple in the back seat. The girl was behind the driver's side. The boy was behind the passenger side. He was leaning on his right shoulder and they were both dead. She appeared to have moved the seat forward, opened the door to try to get out, but she was overcome by the fumes and she never made it. And they were a very young, handsome couple. And this was just a, wasn't a call. We were just driving down this lover's lane, just checking people that were parked there to make sure everybody was copacetic. Everybody was there in their own will. And, you know, that's what we did. So we come across this double suicide. Now that has bothered me. That has stayed in my mind. That has made me think when my children were younger and they were having issues with their boyfriend and girlfriend, I, of course, that popped back up. I can tell you the night, the fragrances of the cologne the girl had on, the perfume, what she had on for clothes, what he had on, what they were eating. They had a bag of um, Doritos and a Coke, a can of Coke. Um, everything about that car, I can describe it vividly because that was etched in my mind that particular night and it has never left. Um, again, did it cause me stress where I didn't go to work and I couldn't perform? Absolutely not. Um, you know, back in the day, I worked four to 12 for 20, I'm sorry, yeah, for 28 years. And for the first four or five years, when we got out of work, we used to go and drink. 1230 at night, we'd all meet and we'd drink till three or four in the morning. Sometimes we'd drink in a parking lot across from the police station. It was a medical center. There was no one out this time of night. We'd go behind the center. There was nobody. It was, a, it was a, um, an urban a neighborhood, all the businesses were closed. There was a high school across the way. There was a canal in the high school. But we'd drink there all night till four or five in the morning. And then we'd go home and get a shut eye and get up. And sometimes you'd go home, get up at seven, go do a detail. Um, but drinking definitely, we called the choir practice. We got that from Joseph Wamba, who was a great author from the LAPD. He's written numerous books that have been movies, The Onion Field. The New Centurions, The Glitter Dome, um, just many, many books. He was an L.A. cop who became a great novelist and a great writer. I mean, very, very good writer. There's been a few cops that have turned novelists. He's one of them, Joseph Wamba. I don't believe he's still alive. There was another one. He was a New York captain. No, I'm sorry. He was a New York detective. And um, I can't think of his name. Right now. He's another great writer, though. 
can't think of his name. Uh, it'll come to me. I was on a talk show with him once. He was a good writer too. And uh, he actually had a daughter who was a lieutenant on the New York PD when I met him. Kunitz was his last name, Kunitz. Anyway, getting back to post-traumatic stress. It's something that's gonna be there whether you want it or not, it's gonna happen. It's gonna, it's gonna be embedded in your mind and it's gonna stay with you for the rest of your life. Good or bad, doesn't matter, you know? I don't care how much you work out, how healthy you are, how much you pray, it doesn't matter. It's just, there are certain incidents that are going to be embedded in your psyche and stay with you the rest of your career. Few people, believe it or not, few people make it from the start of their police career to the end. You know, when you first become a cop, you think I'm gonna retire when I'm 55, I'll have 35 years on or whatever, and I'll, I'll be old enough, I'll have the right numbers to get my, my pension, 80% of what I make in a weekly pay, I'll get that as a pension. Sounds good, and it is good. 10 years after you retired and people are getting raises, you're still getting that pension. So I don't know, I don't think it's that good. Um, the other side of it is most cops don't live 10 years after they retire. Most cops are dead. White cops are dead, black cops, male, female, doesn't matter. Um, usually they die before the before the 60. I know it's a horrible thing to say, but it's a fact. It's not my stats. Department of Justice do all these surveys. They do all these, these uh, the rituals where they go out and they speak and they, and, and they get all kinds of documentation. And, you know, a lot of cops take their own lives. So that adds to that adds to the uh, the equation of the age. But the average white male might live to be about 80. The average white cop uh, might live to be about 60. And that's horrible. You know, and again, it doesn't matter what you think or what you want or what you're doing. You know, these are stats that are, that are factual. And there's a lot of healthy cops. I knew a cop that ran 18 marathons. He was there when he was 52. All right. Um, you know, and you know, in your own departments, you, you know people. So if you think you're going to come on and do this job for 35 years and get out and grab a pension, well, that's the goal. But in the meantime, you got to take care of yourself. I think it's really good to have a debriefing of a diffusing after a critical incident. Bad fire, five people die. First one on the scene, brand new cop going through a divorce, wife's cheating on him. He's got a couple of kids, great father, great husband. You know what? Whatever her reasons were, they were, whatever. I don't know. I don't know what goes on behind closed doors, but my heart went out to this officer and uh, he moved on, got his life in order. Um, still a cop, does a great job, but he went to a bad fire. First six months on the job, five people died. He was involved in a shooting. Within one year, this, this cop was did more in one year. He was involved in more critical incidents than most cops are in their whole career. Plus, he was going through a divorce that he didn't want. So just imagine where his head was at. And I know when I'd call him to check on him or text him, um, sometimes he wouldn't get back to me and there'd be one-word answers. And I felt like I was bothering him, so I stopped. But I did tell him, you know, I'm not going to keep texting and bothering. If you need me, I'm here. Well, he never contacted me again. I didn't take it personal. 
I hope he found somebody that could help him. I suggested that if he wasn't going to see me, he should see someone. I'm, I'm hoping he did. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that that fire, he had a lot of other things going on, but he pulled up to a fire where five people died, three of them were children, you know, three or four o'clock in the morning. That had to be something that just stayed with me. And on top of everything else that was going, he was involved in the shooting. He was shot at two weeks, either before or after that fire. It was all very, it all happened simultaneously within seven or eight months. Everything that I, I just went over. But my point is the post-traumatic stress that this officer would absorb as a result of everything going on in his life. Um, I've always wanted to get in touch with him and ask him, you know, how'd you get through this? Tell me, tell me your secret. What did you do? Because as far as I know, he didn't turn to alcoholic drugs. He didn't turn to promiscuity, gambling. No, he just got through it, you know? And maybe a lot of people can on their own. We all have, you know, incidents, our lives. We try to have a good life, but nothing's perfect, you know? There's always going to be death. There's always going to be, you know, disappointments. You know, you can't, you can't prevent that. You know, we don't like it, but that's just part of life. And when you are an EMS worker, excuse me, you know, a cop fireman uh, going on these calls and going to these horrific scenes on top of your life events that are going on, you, you got to absorb these too. So there's no wonder that police and firemen die at a young age, usually from heart problems, because the adrenaline goes into the arteries, then it subsides and it goes back into the arteries the next day, a couple hours later, then it subsides, a lot of blockages. Um, these obviously layman's terms, but this is what happens. And uh, Dr. Henry Abraham was the head, of psychiatry at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. And uh, he was a guy with a ton of knowledge, you know, and he, he could explain stress better than I ever would be able to. Dr. James Reese from the FBI, just another guy. You can read, you can read his writings, um, Policing a Violent Society by Dr. James Reese. Dr. Reese uh, has passed away, great guy. He was one of the original profiles for the FBI looking for mass murderers and bad people. But um, he always felt that cops were getting a bad, a bad rap, not getting enough attention. So he started working with people um, like myself and my partner at the time, Tom Fleming. In 1987, we had our first seminar. Uh, New Attitudes was the name of our organization. And we, we had a seminar just for law enforcement about stress. And Dr. Reese was the keynote speaker. And there's about 135 police officers and their family members there. And uh, my friend Tom Fleming put that together, Sergeant Fleming, and it was a huge hit. So much so that World News Tonight with Peter Jennings found out about it. They they came and they they videoed our next seminar. And, you know, it was a new topic in the 80s. Talk, cops talking about addiction you know, abuse of alcohol and drugs, promiscuity, gambling, and all that. Openly talking about it openly and, and blaming the job for a lot of, you know, not blaming, but, you know, a 
attributing a lot of that behavior to the drug. And most people will agree. Now, today's society, there's a lot of people that just don't like police officers because the media shows them over and over and over and over again, something very negative. George Floyd being murdered by a police officer, nailing on his neck. I'm sure that didn't help the man at all, but I think he had underlining issues as well. Irregardless, that cop was charged justifiably, found guilty, and I have no empathy or no sympathy for him. That was I've never seen anything like that. Never. If I had been there, I would have pulled him off after he was handcuffed. Once somebody's handcuffed, that's it. They're done. They can say anything they want, but the handcuff behind their backs. What are they going to do to you? They're sitting on their ass. They're not, there's very little they can do to you. So anyway, I just think the media plays a big part in all the stress that we encounter. Um, they can make us heroes. We save a drowning child, uh, run into a burning building. They can make us heroes, and that looks good in print. But let me tell you, they only write that article once. Okay? You make a mistake, they're going to write a ton of articles. And they're not going to let up. There's a state tr trooper from Massachusetts who's in a New Hampshire jail on a domestic charge. He's been there over nine months, lost his job, lost his family. And he cannot leave this jail. This judge will not let him out. Um, he put his hands on a woman. He, he's, he beat her, you know, and um, does he belong there? I think. He has a, he should have an opportunity to get out and defend himself. Um, if he was anything other than a state trooper, I think he would have been out. And I think it's overkill. It's my opinion, just my opinion. I don't know all the facts of the case, but I do know the media has written over 17 articles. This is a major newspaper, the Boston Herald, the Boston Globe, major newspapers. It's been 17 articles on this day. He's been on the radio. Well, he hasn't, but hit this incident. And, uh, you know, he's like public enemy number one. What he did is wrong, 100%. But let's treat everybody fair and equitable. We're talking about fair and equitable treatment of minority people, Asians, Blacks, Latinos, Southeast Asian. You know, let's be fair and equitable to everybody, especially with law enforcement. But you're not going to find that. You know, we're supposed to be held to a higher standard. And I can understand some of that. But on the other side of it, it only seems to work the way they, the media want wants it to work because they can crucify you, they can ruin you. you know. Post traumatic stress, post traumatic stress, is something. If you're not sleeping, if your behavior is changing, if you lack your energy, you're not eating properly, you're overeating, you're undereating, um, you're drinking too much. Maybe you're doing other drugs, painkillers. You know, you really have to take a look at yourself and decide, you know, do I have a problem or not? The first five years of most cops' careers, is, it's like a honeymoon. You love it. You took the job because you wanted to do it and you like it. But after a while, that shine goes away. And I know I've talked to cops that have been on three years. And all of a sudden, this job just doesn't seem to have the same glit that it did when they first come on. Years ago, it was five years, but I think the last couple of years, it's been really tough being a police officer and a fireman as well, and a correctional officer. I see correctional officers in my private practice 
they don't have it easy either. They're behind a, a, a wall. People don't really see what goes on. But let me tell you, in Massachusetts, it's not easy being a correctional officer. You know, uh, everything's videoed now, which is good. I think it's good in the sense that, you know, if, if you if you act up, if you do something that's not right, you're gonna someone's gonna have a video. So that that will keep most people on the straight and narrow. Um, I think a lot of cops that wear body cameras they they're less apt to lose their temper or or act in a way that would be detrimental to you know their careers and to society in general. You know we're here to protect and serve people. That's what we're supposed to do, but it doesn't mean we should be spit on, um, ridiculed, you know, and um, paint it with one big broad brush because one cop did a horrific thing. But the media wants you to think most cops are like that. You got to be afraid of the cops, you know, be afraid, especially if you're a minority. Well, let me tell you, 35 years, Lowell, Massachusetts, I never saw one act of racism, never. Not once did I ever see a cop act in a way that I would call racism. Did I hear cops say the N-word? Of course. Have I said it? Absolutely. Is that racism? I don't think so. You know what? I feel that we're in a we're in a time period now where statistics speak for themselves. Numbers don't lie. People just don't want this job anymore. But if you have this job and your heart's still in it, and you and you wanna, excuse me, make it to those years when you can retire and maybe do something else, get out of after 20, 25 years, um, goes by fast as you see it. But I, I can tell you this, after you've been on about 10 years, try to enhance your education. Think about doing something else. Maybe you go back to school, get a master's degree. Maybe you might want to be a teacher. You might want to do something other than this job because after 20 years, you've seen it all, you've done it all. You might want to finish your career. Maybe you did well on some of these tests and you want to finish your career as a captain or a lieutenant or a sergeant or a chief or a deputy. Wonderful. But irregardless, post-traumatic stress is an enemy. It, it definitely is going to cling to you whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, it will. And some of the symptoms, I just spoke of them earlier, um, they're very sneaky, you know. I know since I've been retired, I've been retired six years. It's been a blessing. It really has. Um, I'm closer. I'm closer to my own higher power, my God, as I understand. Um, I'm a lot quieter. I read a lot more. Uh, I'm in the process of putting a book together that I started working on in the '90s. And uh, I find I find time now. I can take an hour and a half, two hours, a couple times a week. It's a lot of work. I didn't realize how much work this would be. But I'm hoping to make it till I'm 80. <laughs> That's the goal. And uh, I'm here. I'm available. I have my own therapy business called Therapy Services, 978-459-4884. That's my office number, 978. 459-4884. And my cell phone is 
7461717. And my email is Mike Miles, M as in Mary, S as in Sam, W as in Whiskey, MSW at gmail.com. Mike Miles, MSW at gmail.com. Feel free to call me at my office, call me on my, so my phone, or um, send me an email. I'm here. Um, a little tired tonight. Start my vacation, heading up to Maine, the Maine coast. I'll be up there tomorrow, and I'm looking forward to a two weeks of pleasure. I talked to Jersey Ed today. I told him I was going to put together my answer on the call podcast tonight. Pardon me. And um, so that's what I'm doing. I hope everybody's well. Please feel free to contact me if I can be of any help to you, anybody in your department. If you're a cop, if you're a firefighter, if you're an EMS worker, if you're a correctional officer, and if you're a veteran. I'm also an Army veteran, three years, United States Army Military Police Corps, 72 to 75. Um, I can't say enough about our vets, our disabled vets. I donate money to disabled vets. I was on a board for a while called VAV, Veterans Assistant Veterans, but I'm just too busy. I can't be everywhere at once. So what I did was instead of helping the VAV, which they do a lot of work for veterans, I started donating percentage of the money I make in my business to certain organizations and uh, VAV is one of them because the, I'm sorry the DAV is one of the disabled veterans of America because uh, all these people that are buried around the world that are fought in world wars world war one world war two the Korean war Vietnam war in the war in the Mideast, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, so many people have died and uh, they're all young, young adults. It's, it's horrific. I was just at a gravesite, excuse me, 12 hours ago, I was at a gravesite early this morning of a young officer who died in Virginia. She was shot to death. She was a vet, Navy vet. She's buried in the Lowell Cemetery. And uh, I said a blessing, a little prayer. People give of themselves to their country, but you know what? The media doesn't give a shit. They could care less. They could care less. You know, unless it's a sensational incident where you're killed, then they will give you the fanfare. But let me tell you, without the veterans of this country, we wouldn't have the country we have. You can say what you want about America, but there's not a country that comes close to it, nowhere. And if you think there is, you, you're either very ignorant, you're uneducated, or you never travel. Go to Mexico, throw away your ID, try to get out. All right, go to Germany, throw away your ID, try to leave. Go to Ireland, throw away your ID, try to leave. All right, you can come to America, you can get anything you want without an ID. It's, in, it's insane. But anyway, I don't want to get off of that. More importantly, right now, I'm more concerned about police officers' wellness. Contact me anytime. Excuse me. And uh, God bless each and every one of you. Stay safe. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Answering the Call, the first responders podcast. 
Thanks to Genesis House for supporting those on the path to recovery and keeping this valuable resource free for all our friends in recovery. Follow us on Facebook for past shows and updates and enjoy free access to twice daily support meetings. Brought to you by Genesis House and the Friends in Recovery.